0: Hello everybody and welcome to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm
1: doing the introduction this time. Uh, my name's Stuart. And I'm Cristiano. Hurrah, first introduction. <laughs> In today's episode, for the second part of our journey through Australia, we're going to be looking at 1965 and going through every Gibb composition that we are aware of from this year.
0: And I think it was quite a big year from 65 because,
1: if I'm right, isn't that when they joined with Bill Shepard? Yes. There's quite a few other notable first times quote-unquote that we can talk about as we get through of things that are happening that will really shape the future of the Bee Gees. it always throws
0: me that you you can hear the progress you can hear the twins going from children to to adults
1: and yeah because the way it's sequenced you've got timber from 63 which is towards the end of side one and then you're going into claustrophobia but then side two opens with a track from 65 so it's it's all over the place it's a real mishmash of everything that they've done in the last three years. But it, it pieces together really nicely as an album. They're saying that I'd love to have a vinyl of this.
0: Wasn't there a three CD compilation of the three so-called Australian albums? The festival records. Yeah, coming back 2014. I misheard on that one because I, I didn't see the point of buying it because I had everything, though I did later read that there's one or two alternative versions of different songs that are on there.
1: This material is crying for a... Just a good compilation reissue, if they're in existence, to be able to get the Gib versions of songs that they gave away. A lot of titles that are just titles, so we, we don't even know the quality of the actual mm. songs. As we should see, these, these recordings are definitely worth a listen. And I can certainly see a progression, clearly in 65. There are some songs that I think, you know, wow, this could even have been used in 67 for Bee Gees first and definitely in the next episode for 1966. I'm surprised after the popularity of New York Mind Disaster and
0: To Love Somebody in the US, there wasn't a best-of Australian compilation released. They might have vetoed it anyway, because obviously that they, were, they're, they're looking for, you know, they moved away from these, hadn't they? And they were looking forward, and obviously it wasn't something that they were obviously looking to promote or do.
1: Yeah, their mentality at that point, I think, was to have a clean slate. They've got Colin and Vince, a part of the band, they're now a five piece band so let's just start afresh and they've got they're churning out so many compositions mm. as we know very well from our episodes going through those albums there wouldn't have been space for any of these recordings but then it's like they gained a little bit more confidence in themselves because going into 1970 71 they're doing uh, in the morning of my life don't forget me Ida, jingle, uh, jingle jangle even yeah. alexander's ragtime band so they were clearly Sentimental towards this material but Even though there wasn't a Best of release There's still a lot, a lot of material That other artists could delve into and, and take So in terms of 1965 What are your thoughts on this year for music? Do you have any favourite records? Well, favorite albums? I was four at the time But my brother was born In October
0: 65 And I remember If I was good I got a single And it was um, Message Understood by Sandy Shaw which I've still got. Unfortunately, it's in a really bad condition. It got um, lost, or so. it, it was found under a carpet. So it's got all the grit and stuff. I've actually re, re got it on CD. So, so I remember that one. And the other single, I, a couple of singles I remember was um, the Hollies, "I'm Alive," which I still like to this day. And the Seekers what was that word of Our own was sixty five, I think. No, uh, the "Carnival Is Over."
2: Must be alone, crying for one I've cried before.
1: Any of those songs that you've mentioned, can you hear that reflected in the Bee Gees' music that we're going to discuss today? The Seekers were originally from, I think, Australia.
0: Anyway, or the, the singer Judith Durham, she was from Australia. They're quite folky, and I think the music scene, in hindsight, looking back, you had sort of Bob Dylan coming, you had Donovan, the Kinks, the Rolling Stones. So you're you getting rhythm and blues, you're getting folk. You were getting the kinks that I sort of describe as sort of very English-type music with lyrics and things. In America, you had groups like the Birds
1: that, again, were sort of folk rock. And we're starting to see a mild introduction to psychedelia. Yeah. I, I think you can with things like Rubber Soul. You're starting to move in that direction. Yeah. Even with more sort of world music instruments like the introduction of the sitar it has connotations with mysticism i think in a lot of 65 recordings like norwegian wood but we're still seeing that expansion you know you go back to 64 and you've got stratocasters and it's, it's a very 64 sound whereas 65 there is much more of a i think a wider awareness of artists and i think again it goes back to things like The Beatles going to America and that just opening up a whole new musical landscape.
0: But also I think in early 60s you had groups that were nearly, as we've found out, were nearly all single based and albums just tend to be an afterthought or just compilation. Whereas obviously with The Beatles, albums were becoming a a work of art so that that they were gradually spending more and more time on albums. Um, Hence why you used to get an album and then the singles never appeared on the album. The whole times then were sort of Okay you had your two minute pop song, you're still getting your, your real poppy sound still. I think Mersey beat was slowly on its way out. Yeah, so it, it was a and then you probably you got influence then from America coming in with Tamla Motown. So I think it was all change. 65. But not in Australia as we'll find out from the first <laughs> song. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: I feel that something's missing inside. Every little blow for me has simply died.
1: The first song that we'll be discussing today is Baby I'm Losing You, which was performed by Nolene Batley. This one's got quite a lot of charm to it, and it reminds me quite a bit of Never Like This from the previous episode. I think this has gone into Petula Clark territory.
0: She even sounds a bit like her, and I can imagine this being an early Tony Hatch composition. It's a good song, and I sometimes tend to think that that Barry's writing the more loungy laid-back for the females and the rocky songs, or the more upbeat, for male vocal. I think he writes very well for female singers. I mean, this one is fine. It's just the awful backing, the wailing in the background. And you're thinking, just edit the backing out. And even if we had the Bee Gees backing on this, it it would be a million times
2: better. What am I to you? Just a tie to play When you're through
0: We don't need these high-pitched wailing in the background. It's it's detracts from the song, but whether I can't honestly say whether that was popular at the time, I don't know. We heard it before with, with Surfer Boy
1: from 63. Somebody's either, either in pain or... or
0: but yeah, it, it ruins the song
1: for me, but it's an OK composition. Yeah, I like the laid-back flavour to it, and am I hearing castanets or some sort of clicking in the background that gives it a bit of a... Yes, a subdued, laid-back feeling, which contrasts nicely with a lot of the other songs that we're going to hear from 65, which are very much more rock and roll. Even though I've got
0: it copyrighted as 65, whether it was something that Barry had sort of demoed or worked on in 64... It seemed that Joseph Brennan was keen on this song as well because he said it showed both her voice and he thought it was a fine ballad by Barry indicating how good his song sounded when sung and recorded well unlike the cheap jobs done with the BG's own sessions. He goes on to say that Barry's lyrics on this song are unusually good in shifting the meaning of the title line Baby I'm Losing You sung sadly the first time but
1: by the end it's sung with determination. I've not listened to the song enough times to be able to no, I pick up on but that, but that's, that's a good observation there. And again, it's showing that growing maturity in Barry's writing and, and he's playing with different techniques, different plays on words, as Brennan has noted here, which is good to see.
0: So with that, Chris, shall we go into the Bee Gees' sixth single? This one is called Every Day I Have to Cry.
4: Was a little girl I planned to marry If this was my love I didn't want to share I thought that love would make my life brighter. so sorted She said she couldn't love me cause I didn't have no money Every day I have to cry some Dry the waters from my eyes some Till the clouds go rolling by I really love her, every night now I'm thinking
1: of her. This is an Arthur Alexander composition from 1962, so this is another BG single in which they're covering somebody else's song. Arthur Alexander, as pointed out in the ultimate biography, holds the distinction of being the only composer who's had their material covered by the Beatles, with Anna on Please Please Me, and then the Rolling Stones, who covered You'd Better Move On. And then the Bee Gees covering this. He's the only composer to have the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and the Bee Gees covering their material.
0: Well, that's something to have on your CV, isn't it? It, it
1: really is. What do you make of this cover?
0: I like it. I'm quite surprised that they've, they've done a cover. I would have thought this was a decision by the record label. I can't see that Barry would want to record this. But he, he does it vocal wise. He does a really good job on it.
1: One thing that I have picked up on, especially with Every Day I Have to Cry, is just how confident and also how playful the Bee Gees are when they're performing or covering somebody else's song. We saw it in the Life in a Tin Can episode when they were covering Hey Jude. I kind of feel like when it's not their own song, they don't have to be as protective of it because it's not their own composition. They can let loose a little bit if it's someone else's composition and they can sort of rework it to fit their own voices i yeah i think and as a result of that we hear a slightly different Bee Gees every time they cover someone else's material and i think that shines through on every day i have to cry well,
4: every time you good morning, every time you're gonna hurt for my body every day i have to cry some dry the water from my-
0: but having one cover on as the A-side, we, we now flip it over and the B-side is called You Wouldn't Know, which is a Barry composition.
1: And what a treat this one is. I think this is really good. I could have happily had this as the A-side. Okay, none of these singles by the Bee Gees at this point are doing particularly well, but I would sooner the A-side be a Gibb composition.
4: Come on to me what I have it. I love you all but I know that I'll get you some So will be a big round. You if I told you so You not know if I told yourself. you so well, I'm telling
0: you now Isn't this the one you can actually hear Robin on this one? You can really hear him start to shine through
1: here Especially that fade out at the end
0: It's also the first song which uh, Morris is credited with playing the organ unlike the turnaround single where the Bee Gees just did vocals, this one they are playing their instruments as well. So with Morris on the organ as well, it's it's you're getting a good sound to it. The lyrics, what is it? It's come a bit close to me. Let me be kissed. Come on and give to me what I've missed. I love you, woman. I know that I'll get you somehow.
1: Yeah, and I love the way that their voice is just on the word, get you some how. It's not a key shift or a chord shift, but it, it just goes really nicely. Then you get the twins, you wouldn't know if I'd told you so, you wouldn't know if I hadn't told you so. Yeah, really nicely structured song. Again, like Claustrophobia, this is one of those really neat little slices of pop that the Bee Gees are just really, really figuring out how to make these really good two-minute songs. I have to say that with the Australian material... I haven't been having to listen to the music on constant repeat for the songs to sink in, maybe three listens, and I've, I'm already very familiar with what the song is. Which I can't say about every Bee Gees album that we've reviewed so far. I think that
0: is just the sign of the times though, isn't it? It's just it's just nice little two-minute pop songs. In April '65, we get another coupling of an A and B side by Barry, and this was done by Trevor Gordon, but this time on his own, not with the BGS. Or it's it, they might have been on it, but it's it's just listed as Trevor Gordon. The A side's called "Little Miss Rhythm and Blues," and this is coupled with "Here I Am." <laughs>
5: Nothing can be the when she shakes all over the town No one can do it any better than we Cause when we get out on the floor you see You've got nothing to lose Little mystery in my Blues, Mmm,
1: Would you agree with my assessment that this is the Bee Gees version of Roll Over Beethoven? I've put down, it reminds me of John Lennon's I'll Cry
0: Instead from Hard Day's Night.
1: Yep, definitely.
0: It's not dissimilar vein really to the previous song we played, You Wouldn't Know. Very up-tempo, very
1: band-orientated song. But I would say You Wouldn't Know sounds a bit more contemporary for 1965, whereas... Little Miss Rhythm and Blues is very much more 1963-1964 territory. Yeah. I think this one is a little bit dated. It's it's going back in time. Especially with that George Harrison-esque guitar solo in the middle. But what I will say developing from you wouldn't know is robin and his contribution here is it robin i can't tell there are certain points i can't tell whether it's trevor or whether it's robin who's doing this guttural sound that we hear a few times from robin i can't tell whether it's robin actually robin's voice or whether robin was directing trevor gordon and saying this is how i yeah do it yeah but there is a point where he says, um, "Take it, Trevor." That's clearly his voice, so he is there. I think on the studio floor. But it's good to see him so involved with something. He's, he must have been excited by this one. We're starting to get, starting to hear the twins
0: now, aren't we? Yeah. And then we've also got another version by a New Zealand
1: guy, Judge Wayne. Probably say that I prefer Gordon's. Yeah, I do. Version of it. I think it transposes better to that more, more energy Chuck Berry style. Yeah. yeah. You love it That's the first instance we've had within a year, two artists covering the same gift yeah. song. So, then what do you make of the B side, Here I Am?
5: I know that you want a man to love you like no other can. Well, here I am, here I am. I know that you want a boy to fill your lonely heart with joy. Here I am, here I am, I'm going to prove that my love was made for only you. If you don't believe me, watch and you'll see me, make you love me too. I like
0: this. I don't know if it's my ears, but it sounds like he's duetting with Robin on the Here I
1: Am part. Yeah, I can sort of hear that as well. Personally, I think I prefer this to the A-side. It's a little bit understated. Again, I would describe it as a typical B-side and a fine B-side. Yeah, I don't mind this one. Again, with Here I Am, we're going back to that sixty-three, sixty-four simple music thing that we discussed in the previous episode, where it's very much songs where the subject matter is boy loves girl, girl loves boy.
0: Three Brothers are actually on, on backing vocals on this as well. You can't hear them so much in the mix on this one and also in april we have another single this is the fourth recording from for brian davis and this one's called i should have stayed in bed Lot to say on this one. All I've put down is it's interesting that quite a few of these 65
1: recordings are upbeat and we are getting guitar solos. But it's a year's delay from the music scene of 64 in the UK. It's taken them like a year to catch up for that in Australia to start picking up on these because we weren't getting many instrumental solos in 64 for the Australian music. And now they're, they're streaming out, aren't they? Yeah. You can say
0: sixty-four and then obviously the music
1: travels, then Barry's gotta compose the song, hasn't he? But then you get to the end of sixty-five and certainly through sixty-six where the BGs are no longer playing catch-up to the rest of the world in terms of music. They're composing their own revolutionary music, which becomes the yeah, same yeah. for other artists to follow. I Something that I have started to note with all of these early Australian recordings is that Barry's writing is more often than not from the first person perspective. I should have stayed in bed. It's not until later on, maybe in 66 and a bit afterwards, that then we really start to get the storytelling songs from the third person perspective.
0: Mm. Probably gives him a wider scope to write about, I was, I assume. Yeah. This one, actually, I think sounds a bit more contemporary for the time. Than Little Miss Rhythm, and then quite strangely, in May '65, Festival released the Bee Gees' first EP. Looking at it, I think this is probably one of the rarest releases. I think only a few hundred copies were actually done. I mean, it's quite a bizarre release actually, because they all they do is so we're talking '65. They released the first four songs from the first two singles. So you got Battle of Blue and Grey, Take Hold of That Star, Timber, Three Kisses of Love. It's in a picture sleeve with the picture of the Bee Gees from 63. So you're sort of jumping back two years, literally. And then within
1: months, you've got the new LP coming out. Yeah.
0: It's as if they didn't quite know how to market them, what to do with them.
1: Anywhere from beginning of the 1960s through to the end of the 1980s, one year or two years in the music industry is the equivalent of 20 years today. Because everyone was so prolific then, you see. The changing technology. Yeah, everyone was so prolific. It was commonplace to have an album out every year, every other year. And if it wasn't a studio album, then it would be a live album. Unless the festival was just panicking. They hadn't any, any Bee Gees product for like two months. <laughs> <laughs> they probably thought we'd better, better shove something out or something. Yeah, it, it's, it's a strange one. It's a strange EP to release. Though I suppose for
0: collectors it's worth hunting down It must be probably one of the most rarest releases And then in June 1965 We get another Barry composition called I Will Love You I've got it, some listed it as an A-side Other people list it down as a B-side The other track on this single is called I'm going to buy me mother-in-law a block of land on Mars Sounds horrific, doesn't it? (laughs) This B-side was written by Nat Kipner so we've mentioned him a few times, haven't we? And his son was in Tintin.
5: If this heart should cease its beating When the years of life are done I will not forget this meeting Cos you are the one I will love you
1: For me, this is up there, or rather down there, as one of the weakest, if not the weakest, Gibb composition we've discussed so far, going from 1959 onwards. I'm really not a fan of this one at all. There's nothing here to see any progression. It's mainly just the, the vocal performance from Brady. It's, it's it's not my cup of tea. It's It's just not what I'm interested in. And the song itself, I find the lyrics a little bit trite. Yeah. To be honest it's, it's a bit saccharine I don't like the production I well, wonder how long it took Barry to write this one And was it a case like it was for him in the 1980s uh, And onwards Where he was demoing the songs himself Giving those demos to the artists For them to listen to and, and guiding them through And in a few cases Sometimes maybe even keeping his demo In the backing track mm. Or was it just a case of Standing in front of the artist Playing, blocking out the song on a guitar giving them an idea of where the lyrics are going to go and and that's it because it was on the australian parlophone label so
0: you're talking of a quite established label aren't you well unfortunately things don't get any better for me actually with the next release again Two Barry songs. This is by a singer I've never heard of called Michelle Ray. The A side is I want to tell the world. And the B side is everybody's talking. This, this A-side reminds me of something From these these sort of 1950s musicals Where they're suddenly walking down the street And suddenly burst into song The vocalist sounds very What would you say Sort of for stage musicals Yeah It's not a very poppy voice More theatrical Theatrical, that's it And, and she adds a little bit of Buddy Holly in the lyrics And, and the way she pronounces the world and stuff <laughs> Whether that's to try and make it a bit contemporary or whether the Bee Gees told her to sing it like that, because reading on this one, the Bee Gees do appear on this song and the B side, and funny enough, this was produced by Bill Shepherd. So, this is his first involvement then? He's producer of this, and it's got Barry on vocals and guitar, Robin on vocals and possible organ, and Morris on vocals and guitar. I can't really hear the brothers. Well, well that screeching vocal, isn't
1: it? You probably <laughs> hides it, it. Do you think that it could have been Bill Shepherd who brought in Michelle Ray as a vocalist for this? Considering that his previous work had always been working with orchestras and choruses. And she could have been a session person because I've looked and I can't find anything on her at all.
0: Unfortunately I I Songs are passable, but I can't get past the singer on this one.
1: Yeah, and we've been saying in this episode about seeing a progression in 65, but I feel like with these few songs, we've seen a little bit of a dip. I'd forgotten that we had that four or five songs
0: coming up that it's difficult to be dismissive about them all.
1: With the bar being set so high with claustrophobia and Timber and Three Kisses of Love, we have developed a bit of an expectation of what the Bee Gees are capable of. And with a song like this okay it's 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 another barry composition if it's not as good as the others then fair enough yeah and the b-side that's just seems sort of quite country to me
0: but i have got a lot to say on it really it's it's it is what it is this one
2: everybody's talking about my baby
0: though i've got to say chris that i mentioned it on the previous podcast about one road this next song might be my probably one of my least favorite but it's it's got such a catchy hook to it that it does retain this is an earworm an earworm yeah but probably not for the right reasons
2: who's been riding
1: This be
0: Who's Been Writing on the Wall? Yeah. And this is by a singer called Jenny Bradley, but not the Jenny Bradley from Coronation Street. <laughs> Again, is, is a song
1: that could quite easily have been on a children's programme. Yeah. Well, it was also given to Laurie Barmer, who we spoke about in Odessa. She did Four Faces West. And with Who's Been Writing on the Wall, as you said, it's it's not an A-class Gib composition but it is memorable and it's impressive that the Bee Gees can write for, you know, you've got your crooners, your Frank Sinatra style singers, you've got your country singers and now the writing for children. Yeah. Well, I suppose they were writing for themselves when they were children, but they can write for others, for, for other children. It's it's impressive. Yeah, it's another one to add to the repertoire, I suppose.
2: Is he tall or is he small? I wonder what his game is. I wish he
0: you got much to say on the b-side chubby <laughs> not you personally it's the, t- the song title chubby <laughs>
1: Now, I know that times have changed and words have gained different meanings over the past 50, 60 years, but Chubby, the people call him Chubby, this is a strange one. At the time of recording these compositions, Jenny Bradley was 10 years old, and I find it quite uncomfortable that she's singing these songs about wanting to marry someone at that age. I, I, I just don't quite like the idea of having this girl's only ambition is to marry someone, regardless of who they are. And this was something that was happening quite a few times in the 1960s. So there was Roberta Tovey, who had featured in the 1965 Doctor Who and the Dalek films with Peter Cushing. Oh, okay, yeah. And on the back of that, they released a novelty single for her. We had Who's Who on the A side, and the B side of that is a song called Not So Old, It's quite a disturbing song about Roberta saying that she wants to wait all her life to be of age, to be able to marry the man that she loves. It just doesn't come across too well. I know that we're looking at this from the 21st century perspective. Times were different then, weren't they? Yeah, I I just find it a bit bit off.
2: Mm.
1: Well, after that dip in quality of compositions we then hit another real high point certainly for me we have the next bg's a side b side released in september presumably recorded in august and this was at festival we have wine and women backed with follow the wind which i think are two real quality bg songs <laughs>
4: It end. I don't mind. It end. I will what shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do?
1: Talking of the A side, Barry says, "Wine and Women" went to number nineteen mainly because we went out and bought it. You could do that in those days. And then Robin elaborates on this, saying about how the single entered the charts. We found out the shops of all the radio stations survey, about six in all. You didn't have to sell very many records to get on the actual Sydney charts. We arranged for our fan club to meet us on the steps of Sydney Town Hall. It wasn't hard to rendezvous with them because there were only six of them. (laughs) So there they were going around buying all of the singles just to bump up the chart numbers. And so this is the one where credentials and personnel are uncertain for these two songs, but it's very likely that this has Bill Shepard at the helm. I think with this one, they're starting to
0: sound like themselves. Yeah. and sound like the Bee Gees. You can't really say this sounds like anything else. That's what I mean. It's You're not referring to oh, it's got a bit of, of Hollies, Beatles, anything. It, it
1: sounds like them. The Pounding Piano... The real persuasiveness to the verse and the choruses yeah i see what you mean does robin sing bit of lead in this one as well yeah i can hear robin's voice the line i feel no pain that's definitely robin
4: if it
0: Again, you've got the harmonies coming in
1: on it as well. And it's in the triple metre, that sort of waltz. Oh, yeah. Tempo.
0: Yeah, sort of a nice waltzy type of... um, I mean, do they do that in many other songs? I'm trying to think of... Yeah,
1: in 65 they do. You've got I Was a Lover, Leader of Men. I've read Chris that at the time, 65, Bill Shepard was 38. So he wasn't young. No, but that's only two years older than George Martin, who was 36 when he met the Beatles in 62. Yeah, he's got to hear that Bill thought the Bee Gees had a lot of potential and
0: gave them as much help as he could, which obviously shows here. The story is that Festival was close to dropping the group and that Bill recorded these pair of songs and then taught Festival into releasing
1: a single since it would already been recorded. It's a great set of two songs to be able to demonstrate the power of the Bee Gees. You know, yeah, he probably would have had a difficult sell if he was trying to do Who's Been Writing on the Wall and Chubby. Oh gosh.
0: But it's a bit different to the uh, I Want to Tell the World that he produced as well. Both penned from the same writer.
1: And you say about this song sounding like the Bee Gees and the Bee Gees only, but I do think that the B-side Follow the Wind has a kind of Seekers feel to it.
4: I'm so weary from holding this load but it's only love for you that I walk this lonely road I must follow the wind follow Star I have counted each flower I have seen, but the place I am going, there's no grass as green. I must follow the wind. Follow the wind and the wind will take me home where I can
0: dream. Well funny you should say that. I've got a version by the new seekers. Don't follow the winds.
1: Okay. I really like this one as well. This is the introduction of that breezy music that we start to see then develop into the likes of Kilburn Towers. What about More in My Life? Do you think it's yeah. an early version? Yeah.
0: It's sort of a folky type song, or? Bob Dylan esque. Yeah, yeah. You can you can hear his influence. That sort of music was coming through in '65.
1: So would you think that the B-side sounds a bit more mature than the A-side? They're two of a piece. Whereas with the pounding triple metre of Wine and Women, you're getting something that's very catchy and very instant. Whereas Follow the Wind, you have to give it a little bit more time and it's more of an acoustic, folky piece, as you said. Follow the Wind is the B.G. stripped back and pared down. Whereas Wine and Women is kind of everything that they have to offer in terms of a good commercial single to coin a phrase it is the best of the bee gees
0: yeah i definitely
1: prefer this one to the a side i just feel
0: this one is now you you it doesn't it's not beatly at all is it do you think or do you think it's something from that you could
1: hear on rubber soul for the first time the production on this song is actually really good we've not really mentioned it before but it's been a running trend that the production on the bee gees songs in in australia that they were recording themselves is much poorer than the production given to the songs that they gave away to other yeah.
0: artists. So with Robin getting the lead vocal, do you think that Barry was, you know, we said, well, Barry's been writing these songs with different people. Do you think there was a time in 65 when Barry was obviously realising Robin's vocals had changed, that he was starting to write with his voice in
1: mind as well? With pieces like this, I really struggle to believe that Morris and Robin didn't have some sort of contribution to the lyrics I feel like they must have had some sort of input I just fail to believe that it would have been solely Barry when you're getting songs like this where Robin's part is such a a major component of the song There's an instrumental solo at one minute's 30, and I can't tell whether it's on the guitar or on the organ. could possibly be both. But the muted, softer sound, I think, makes such a strong comparison or sort of counter comparison to the harsher twang of the guitar solos that we were getting in the previous episode and the previous year with songs like Peace of Mind or even earlier on in this episode with Little Miss Rhythm and Blues. We were talking about that Stratocaster, twangy Hank Marvin guitar sound. Whereas on this, it's much more subdued, much softer. And I think that this demonstrates that the Gibbs have moved away from the sounds of 64 and we're now following the wind, so to speak, <laughs> and looking ahead to the sounds of the later 60s, 66, 67, where softer sounds, softer keyboards and mellotron and slide guitar are more prominent. Would well, you think Bill Shepard had anything to do with that then? Because this is one of his first songs, wasn't it? I should definitely think so. I think he had a good ear for spotting the sounds that are coming up.
0: There was an article in the Sunday Telegraph by Carol Rogers... And she referred to these, this single or this, this song as a com, as commercial folk. In an article headed Barry Boost's The Folk Cult, Rogers confirms Wine and Women as a humdinger and quite extraordinary composition. She continued by saying that it was a kind of a gospel folk song done to her umpapa in waltz time. Crazy but it seems to work. So the critics liked it, but what are the radio stations and record buying public?
1: And on the Bee Gees Sing and Play album, Follow the Wind is really perfectly placed at the end of side two. It's a sign of things to come for the Bee Gees, with the counterpart leads from Barry and Robin, and then the brothers all backing one another on the chorus. I think this is is a really, really strong song. I don't think we've gone through the track listing yet, so I'll go through it. On the Bee Gees Sing and Play 14 Barry Gibb songs, which is probably their best album title... (laughs) it starts off with side one track one I was a lover a leader of men I don't think it's funny how love was true to be or not to be timber exclamation mark claustrophobia and could it be closing side one flipping over onto side two and the children laughing wine and women don't say goodbye peace of mind take hold of that star you wouldn't know and follow the wind.
0: Yeah, so it's more of a compilation, isn't it, with just a few tracks added on.
1: Definitely, yeah.
4: I must follow the
1: wind. The next listed composition that we have is Morning of My Life, or as it's titled on Brilliant from Birth, In the Morning.
4: When the moon is at its rest You will see me At the time I love the best Watching rainbows Play on sunlight Pools of water Iced from cold nights In the morning Tis the morning of my life
0: When I first heard this one, the first thing that I heard, or, or to me, was how close Mike Barry's voice was. It sounds really up close to the mic, and, and I thought this is totally different to what we just listened to. Follow the wind, and yeah. how different it was. And it wasn't until I, I read up on it that this was actually re, uh, well recorded in '66. And again, it was one of those that was held back. It was used as a B-side for Ronnie Burns. He does appear a lot, doesn't he, Robin Burns? Does he? <laughs> and it was an A-side for Esther nabi which I think we discussed of My Home on the very first Yeah, that, takes, that takes us full circle. Yeah, so we're, we're back then to the A-side of that one. So we're talking a song that was 65, demoed in 66, and then released not by the Bee Gees until 71. But I think it's a wonderful song. I think I mentioned it before, but it's in my top three Australian songs.
4: In the daytime, I will meet you as before You will find me waiting by the ocean floor Building castles
5: in the shifting sands In a world that no one understands is the morning
3: of my
1: And the last version of "In the Morning" that appeared in that little medley was performed by Mary Hopkin, and that appeared in the promotional video for Apple around 1968. Ah, okay, that reminds me. That's one of that's
0: a really early single I had of hers, which was um, "Those Were the Days." I was always fascinated at the time because I didn't realise that this you, you had the single, and then one side was the was an Apple. Then you flipped over to the B side, which is called "Turn, Turn, Turn." We'll have turn it over Turn, turn, turn And that had an apple sliced in half And I was fascinated by by this And I, I didn't realise till late years later That I
1: think it was Apple 2 I think Because Hey Jude was Apple 1 Because her first album Postcard Was produced by McCartney And so So was uh, Those Were The Days as well He actually found her the song In The Morning doesn't appear on that album But I do wonder if that version That's in that trailer Was arranged by McCartney <laughs>
4: That was Mary Hopkin
1: With Follow the Wind, and then In the Morning, and then there's another composition that we're going to get to shortly. I think we've reached the cream of the crop for 65, and I agree with you. This is one of, if not the best, compositions for the Bee Gees for 1965. It's one of those timeless songs, and we spoke about it in our episode for two years on. But this is just one of those songs that they could have put on any album. It would never have been out of place. It is just timeless. It's a beautiful melody. It is the early definitive Pretty Barry song, you know, in, in that similar vein to things like I Can Bring Love. Yeah, this this is this is top tier stuff. But
0: it does, as you say, it follows on nicely from Follow the Wind. It would have been great to have heard Follow the Wind recorded in 66.
1: To have sounded even better. better.
0: Yeah. The vocals would have been done far better.
1: Can you think why they might not have recorded this in 65? I'm wondering whether he'd not completed it. He'd probably
0: copyrighted it. And it was probably a little basic demo or, you know, that he had. But it wasn't probably till 66 that he finally finished it. I don't know, but it's just a superb song.
1: I think it's probably their most covered Australian song. Definitely one of the best known and them revisiting it in 1970, and then it appearing on Best of Bee Gees Volume 2, and then later on, much later on, and more recently, Greenfields Volume 1. Yeah, And they did it in concert as well, didn't they? Yeah, showing that the Bee Gees could write material just as good in the early years as they could during any other time in their lives. And I did read as well that the label were on the verge of dropping the Bee
0: Gees. It was only Bill Shepard that influenced said no no I think they've got potential and I think we should persevere with them that, that they were given the opportunity to to do it and obviously I think spending time I'm wondering we like spending time in the studio this
1: is this is where these songs come about it has to be songs like this which would have positively influenced Bill Shepard for him yeah. to hold them in that high esteem until the sun shines another day. To swing on lines May I be your name? So did you first hear this song? Was it on Brilliant from Birth or did you know it before 1998? I think it might have been when I went to
0: a record fair and brought Best of the Bee Gees Volume 2. Yeah, I think that's when it must have been. So I'm probably I'm probably talking late 70s, 79, yeah, 79, 80, something like that. In the morning, So the next one after that one we, we jump an, up a notch or down a notch it was a single released by dennis williams and the delawares it was released in october 65 the a side was bad girl and the b side was they say
4: Don't be sure, I believe you on your own, or your bad girl, and all you ever do is break my heart. It's all about you, this love of mine. Oh, with the style, I am
1: to share that. Well, this group actually backed the Bee Gees on claustrophobia. Barry, as a way to say thank you. Did these two songs for them
0: Yeah Now I, I find these These are both A bit of a toe tapper Yeah Yeah I do Unlike the Bee Gees records Which we've We've, we've just gone through This is Emphasises A band again You're back to the band feel And I think this is Barry's Sort of second ego You know he's, He had the Bee Gees Doing one thing And then he seems Everything he gives away To Then Seems to be Sort of Really upbeat You're just a bad girl yeah, the Bee Gees weren't on this one but I did read that Barry was present and was making suggestions during the band rehearsals and, he, and I think he must have liked it because he, he did attend the launch party for this as well
1: Yeah, despite what I said about the progressiveness of Follow the Wind and In the Morning. I I do think this is a slight return to the sound of 1964, but it is undeniably catchy, and, yeah, it is a bit of a toe-tapper. I think they
0: say... I could quite easily hear Barry singing this.
5: Have you heard what they say to me? They say our love could never be. They say that we are much too young to be, they say that I should go away and she will cry, oh, she will cry. They say that we are much too young to fall, it's just that
1: they don't understand that's all that we are one. they say is a cleverer composition than bad girl and for me the highlight of the song is the vocal and guitar opening yeah the concept of the song is very neatly summarized in the opening line where it says have you heard what they say to me they say that our love could never be this opens up the song and this is a phrase that is never repeated throughout the song but immediately from the opening line the listener knows the premise and the concept of what the song is going to be about And this is a neat little trick that was used a lot in the mid-60s. The Beach Boys did it on Pet Sounds. I just wasn't made for these times. And then Paul McCartney does the same thing on Here, There and Everywhere. To lead a better life, I need a love of my own. That is a phrase which opens up the song, but it's never repeated. But it's kind of a nice way of, of, yeah, leading in, giving you a sense of this is what the song is about. And we have that on They Say. So that that stood out to me.
0: That's a good spot. I hadn't. I certainly hadn't picked up on that. I was busy tapping my foot.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and also in October, we see the return of Nolin Batley as she records a third competition by Barry, and this was released as a B-side to a non-Gib A-side, and it's called "Watching the Hours Go By."
2: Somebody loves you, somebody.
1: I think that the opening melody of this song is very similar to a later Barry composition from 65 called You Do Your Loving With Me.
0: The vocals are very, very similar. The singers, are, again, very similar. Yeah, It's very difficult for us to, to look back sort of 57 years whatever when these were recorded because I find some of these female singers
1: quite uninspiring. But that was just the style of the time?
0: Well, I suppose I'm, I'm a little bit biased because I'm thinking 65, you had... Petula Clark, you had Scylla Black you had Dusty Springfield you had Sandy Shaw and they were sort of quite contemporary probably not so much Petula Clark but because she was hit in the 50s but but, but was getting hits in 64, 65, downtown etc so whether it's because I've grown up and used to them different style of vocalists then I hear this and I'm, it takes me straight back to these 1950s Oklahoma these sort of musicals that Nan used to like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if she would have liked this. Oh, she probably would have done. So it, it just quite deterred me from, you know, from the song. Uh, yeah. I, I have the exact same thing. Exactly the same. I've got this one down as, as this was Barry's first credit as a producer. And the Bee Gees actually
1: play on this as well. I've got a quotation from Batley who says, I remember Morris on the organ, working out all of the chords. Even then, the Bee Gees were brilliant. And Barry was such a perfectionist, especially rehearsing the song over and over again.
2: And
1: what I was saying before about the songs that they gave away getting better production values than the songs that they recorded themselves, I think that this shows on watching the hours go by with... Morris's organ playing which Batley mentioned it's a constant undercurrent throughout the song and there's a really interesting solo at 1 minutes 40 with guitar and organ
0: sometimes i have to listen to these songs a few times but on my notes i've put another waltz style song and i didn't know whether it was something barry was into at the time because obviously we had that with wine and women
1: and i think you'll probably find that with the with the follow-up single the song does fade out a little bit abruptly after two and a half minutes without really going anywhere and i don't think this charted
0: anywhere i think this went off into obscurity i think like quite a lot of these so with that then shall we go on to the next one which was or the next single actually which was i was a lover a leader of men ah!
1: Was A Lover, A Leader Of Men was released as the Bee Gees' ninth single on the 18th of December. However, it had already seen a commercial release being the opening song on the Bee Gees Sing And Play, which was released in November, and the single was backed by And The Children Laughing. An interesting thing about this song, at just over 3 minutes and 30 seconds, at the time of release, this was the Bee Gees' longest song to date, and I'll give you a comparison. For the Beatles in 1965, their longest song to date at three minutes and 19 seconds was You Won't See Me. Wow. This is, goes down to what I was saying of, of, of them having longer
0: time in the studio. Yeah. It's not rush, 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 release and bringing session men in. They, they, they was obviously able to spend longer and, and work on songs. But I find this one very similar to the previous
1: single. But I do really like I Was a Lover. I think it's got a really good sense of confidence to it. I think it sort of swaggers along. And it grabs your
0: attention quickly, doesn't it? I mean, the, the, the R at the very beginning is quite catchy,
1: isn't it? It's clear to see why this was put as the opening song on the yeah. album. And there's a really great hard-edged guitar solo. I'm presuming the on the studio version was performed by Morris because there's a promotional video for this song in which they're all stood on podiums, and in that Morris is seen to be playing or miming the solo. So I assume that it's him on the studio mm. record. I was a lover, leader of men, did chart in Adelaide, achieving a peak of number nine. Oh, okay, yeah, number nine. As a result of this, Adelaide radio station Five K A presented Barry with his first ever award... and this was for Composer of the Year. Wow, that was good. Well, there were plenty of songs to pick from, didn't they? But I don't think they would have been giving it to... who's been writing on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> with I Was a Lover... we are starting to move away... from the usual subject matters of Barry's songs. You know, beforehand... they've always been about love or money... to, to coin one of his earlier songs. However, in the subject matter of... I Was a Lover, Leader of Men... It kind of sits in between being more of a song, I think, about social status and the past tense of I was a lover. I was a leader of men implies that the protagonist is moving on from their former life and is now more aware of their position Mm. in society as opposed to just being about romance or about money.
0: When you listen to this, have you heard the end of it? It's
1: it's it ends with a different
0: melody. It sounds different to me. The instrumental bit at the end doesn't really match the rest of the song.
1: I'm kind of wondering, was that an early demo of the song or was that just a studio outtake that was...
0: I I would have liked that to have gone on a little bit longer. And it's something that they could have worked on and it's just such a pity that it's sort of like, oh, this is interesting, and it's gone. Ah! And if you flip it over, it's and the children laughing. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, I've been working up the fever, trying to straighten up the mess in my mind about this place. I can't contain myself anymore Can't you see it's written all over my face Why don't you get on your feet It's about time you got to think Whatever happens at peace Well open your eyes and you'll see Children laughing
5: Voices singing Hearts are beating
1: as mentioned with I Was A Lover, Leader Of Men, Barry is moving on from songs just about love or money. And this is a really fascinating lyric from Barry with lines that are arguably overcrowded. I, was, I put on my notes very wordy. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> so many words in the lines of the lyrics that it kind of goes against the metre of, of the lyrics and the metre of the rhythm but i think the subject matter is captivating i'll read out a passage now you're always talking right and talking about the world and its corruption and moral decay but what you're going to do about it nothing because you're more like children than children while they play and i think that the imagery of children playing is used very cleverly by barry as a metaphor for politicians or world leaders and I'm thinking about this in 1965. We're only two years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. We're only two years after the assassination of JFK. But I also think that the the metaphor of children laughing could be a literal description of the youth of the world and their innocence, and that, you know, these are the people who are going to be affected by the actions of, oh, okay. yeah, of the yeah. world leaders. Very similar subject matter to Dear Mr. Kissinger, which we spoke about recently. And I think that in that sense, this song is not dissimilar to... Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind with anti-war messages and references to social structure and hierarchy. Yeah, I think this is one of the most fascinating BG songs that we've come across And so it's far. a subject
0: that, that as you make quite rightly mentioned, so we're talking 65 and then again in 72, 73, 72, 73, wasn't yeah. it? So Barry Reid didn't touch on anything like this sort of in
1: between and, and after, really, has he? And it's, it's quite funny... Comparing it that two years beforehand with Battle of the Blue and Grey, that's a very chirpy sort of innocent song about war, but it's depicting it in a very visceral way. You know, yeah, we had have to go lucky, Have to go it? lucky, yeah. yet someone's mowing soldiers down with a bayonet fixed to you a rifle. Sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas here, Barry's actually stopping and he's looking at the world and he's saying about the way things are going and politicians are laughing like children. Now, you probably know more than me, but I I have read that the actual
0: songs in D major, they they reckon you can play the same note during
1: most of the song. I didn't know about it being in D major, but I did write in my notes here that the constant bassline progression gives the song a strong rhythmic structure, but it doesn't distract the listener from the message of the lyrics. So I, I think that was intentional because Barry's focus for this song was the lyrics, and so so as not to distract from that, he probably just wanted a bit of a simpler rhythm. Mm. When I first
0: heard this, like you, I thought, mm, very Bob Dylan-y, folky, even probably early Paul Simon, that sort of thing. But when I look on the internet and books I've read, a lot of people say it sounds very similar to Eve of Destruction, um, who it was sung by Barry Maguire, and it did act that actually did get to number one in the US.
4: Tell me What you gonna do about it? Nothing, cause you're more like children than children while they play Why you're so clean through and through You won't shake hands with a Negro who's maybe cleaner than you Well listen around and you'll hear Children laughing
1: on the BG Sing and Play album, this song opens up side two. What do you think of it as a side opener? I'm not very
0: keen on this song, to be honest with you. It's not one... I way prefer the A side to this.
1: Has it got anything to do with the fact that you're not so keen on Bob Dylan music? Oh, yeah, it, it could possibly be.
0: I think it's good in the way that you're hearing Barry write something different. But personally, I, I just find it too wordy. I, I'm not so keen on the melody on this one. Anybody buying this album... Are going to go through so many different styles, aren't they? I know that that's what we know the beaches are known for, but to go through children at the age of, sort of eleven singing background vocals, and then you suddenly get this one a very mature song, very odd. I don't know where else you'd put it in the album, really I mean, in the middle, would it stop the flow of the songs? It stands a bit like
1: a sore thumb on this one, and i don't I don't know really. Even though you say it's a bit too wordy, it's not to say that you're not so keen on these political songs, because I know that you really liked Dear Mr. Kissinger. Fans of the Bee Gees must have really thought they were getting their money's worth, because like the A-side, this is a song that clocks in around 3 minutes 20. Well, obviously, Barry had so much to say on this one, that uh, probably could have done a 12-inch version of this one. Yeah, imagine if this song came out in 88, you'd have had a 14-minute 12-inch... Yeah, with a rap in the middle, (laughs) and then drums. Oh no, but
0: stockhaking Waterman would have pumped it up a bit, wouldn't they? Pop <laughs> <laughs> the children, pop the children.
4: Children laughing! Voices singing
1: The children may be laughing, but Robin doesn't think it's funny. <laughs>
4: Kicks out of watching me cry You play around and awful up to hurt me, honey. Why do you laugh when there are tears in my eyes? I don't think it's funny, honey. My skies are not so sunny. Why don't you make up your mind?
1: I don't think it's funny is a notable song because it's the first Barry composition performed by the Bee Gees for which he doesn't provide lead vocals. Because instead we get Robin. So does this go back to what I said earlier where do you think Barry would have wrote this for him? I think so, yeah. Cause it fits his singing style, doesn't it? the slightly self-deprecating lyrics that becomes very typical of Robin in the early seventies of these very sort of dry melancholic songs of someone sort of looking at themselves and, and looking at the situation that they're in. I think that's starting to show on, on this song.
0: But then when you get Robin singing his first sort of record, I can't believe how deep his voice goes. Mm. It's as if to to like contrast with, I'm not that person singing yeah. high-pitched, I'm now singing really, which is not his proper voice but he goes in really deep and you find that as well Um, when we get a bit later on, when we cover songs like Somewhere I've got to say,
1: it's a very catchy chorus on this So far this is the best produced acoustic song from the Bee Gees, I know we looked at it in the morning but that was a 66 recording I think the guitar is very clear and very well balanced in the mix, I think that Bill Shepard's done a really, really good job on this one.
0: And I think this, this would have made an interesting single.
2: But I don't know if you are mine
0: And now we come to another one of my favourite 65 songs, and this one's called How Love Was True.
4: Ooh, love was true yesterday. Ooh.
0: I, I really love
1: this song. The only criticism I've got—it's too short, but it's beautiful. It really is. It reminds me a lot of "Ask Me Why" from the Beatles' first album, "Please Please Me," and yeah. also "I'll Follow the Sun." Yeah, I've got that boy and that sort—that
0: sort of style as well. It, it, it's just this record, really beautiful harmonies. Yeah, and it just proves how they, they can all melt their voice into one. I mean, what I find with the Bee Gees—they've When you hear them individually, the voices sound different. Okay, I think Andy's is quite similar to Barry's. But the three of them... I mean, Robin and Barry's voice are like chalk and cheese. But when you put them together, they virtually become one.
1: Yeah. And I think this is one song that proves that. Well, I second everything that you've just said. This song features the best harmony work that we've heard so far. A magnificent performance from Robin, especially when he sings the line... I saw you standing there. You gave me cause to stare, and at that point, he actually sounds a lot like Barry. Yeah, that it, it was kind of a double take when I was listening to well, it. Well, I think
0: obviously Barry influence in him on there was—you know—he's was a big influence because obviously his older brother. He hadn't found his style properly, but I would love to hear a track with just the voices on this. I don't think there's any chance we'll ever get to hear hear that because of I don't know what the stage the recordings were from these.
1: Yeah, it proves that all you need is, is the three of them. And, and it goes back to those early stories of them when they were playing at cinemas in Manchester. And there's that famous story that they took a record with them that they were going to mime along to, but the record was smashed. And so they had to just ad-lib and sing on the spot. Mm. But all you need is their voices. I would love to,
0: to have seen them in concert. They didn't seem to like go back and say, well, let's do a, a medley of, of, of a few of our Australian songs. That would have been quite nice to to have heard as well, because. But the truth is, they had that many hits, and I
1: suppose in concert they had so many songs that they that they had to play. It's not for me to say, but I like to think that if they were all still here now and still touring, that maybe we would have seen more They'd things look, like that. yeah, look back a bit, yeah. We've read a few quotations from Robin during these episodes where he's very dismissive about the Australian material, and even Barry being embarrassed to perform three kisses of love. On the Parkinson show, I do wonder what today. What does Barry really think of this material? And and I always wonder. We're going through all of these songs, such obscure material. You know, how much of this does he actually remember composing?
0: As we sit in there, you, you, you're talking fifty-seven years ago, aren't you?
4: Ah! you-
1: So I think you would agree with me that with How Love Was True, I'll Follow the Wind and In the Morning. Those are the three best songs. Standout ones, yeah. And it's quite funny. They're all of a similar vein, aren't they? Yeah. It's the softer, acoustic, gentle pieces. It's no coincidence that those are the songs that we always lean towards. Well, they're, they're, they're the sort of songs that got me to like them in the first place. Yeah, this isn't a million miles away from 10 years, 11 years later with... How Deep Is Your Love Really In a way you could say That this was The How Deep Is Your Love Of 1965 Oh yeah In its production And in in its style In comparison To the songs around it I mean when you think In 67 When they come to write Their album They needn't have done Need they No They they (laughs) could have had Could have brought a double Couldn't
0: they With all this stuff
1: And new stuff Yeah I do wonder how many years could they have gone on for releasing an album of maybe 12 songs before they ran out of Australian material? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously
0: they could pick pick and choose, but they must have had so much confidence in their songwriting that
1: they didn't even want to look back. Well, it it took until, was it 1970, when they look at Don't Forget Me Ida and and such like and In the Morning, that clearly they thought, hang on, there was some good stuff in Australia. It's worth revisiting. Oh, yeah, yeah. On December the 8th, Everybody's reviews the Bee Gees' debut album.
0: Barry Gibb, long acknowledged as one of Australia's best songwriters, and his two brothers, Morris and Robin, make up the Bee Gees. As a trio, they have hovered around the fringes of the tops for quite a while now, but never quite made it. Their first LP features tremendous arrangements, expert musicianship, a wealth of dubbing, and their latest single, I Was a Lover, A Leader of Men it's a good sound marred by the fact that the lyrics are hard to understand I prefer the tracks where the Bee Gees take solos and the message is clear we come on to the last song from the album it's the last actual Bee Gees song we've got for 65 and that's to be or not to be You
4: blow me up You let me down How can I love You can me
1: Well, this is a one-four-five chord rocker, very much in the style of Jerry Lee Lewis. This is the first type
0: of song that Barry was giving away to other people; that he actually sings himself. Yeah, uh, I get what you mean. We've had Trevor Gordon. We've had one that we just mentioned recently, Hate the Delawares. Delawares, bad boy. So on the album, he's obviously felt right. I'm going. I'm out of all this. I'm going to go and write a song that I want to sing. It does sound like the songs that he gave away.
1: Because it's a bit more of a 50s sound and the production is a little bit dirgy and a little bit murky.
0: I've put on my notes here, the Bee Gees build up a sweat on their
1: first album.
0: <laughs> and it's also quite odd as well, when you look at the sequencing of the album, this is straight before Timber.
4: Give me a chance, pick up your man!
1: With the authenticity of the composition and how much I think it emulates Jerry Lee Lewis, and it kind of sounds a bit like Little Miss Rhythm and Blues, which we spoke about earlier, proves just how good Barry is at tapping into genres and emulating particular artists. Had this have been a song that was composed 10 years beforehand and performed by people such as Jerry Lee Lewis, then I think it really would have gained status as a classic. Yeah,
0: I put here, that I could imagine this, you, you saying, sung by the Beatles when they used to do the BBC sessions, and then they used to cover 50s records. And that that's, to me, what it sounds like. And I'm wondering whether, whether Barry was listening to them BBC recordings of the Beatles, who were contemporary, singing songs from eight years ago, from
1: 56, 57. And it might be a little bit of a stretch, but I remember back in our episodes on Robin's Reign and Sing Slowly Sisters that Robin and I think also Barry and Morris had a lot of interest in classical literature. And the title To Be or Not To Be, which goes back to Shakespeare, sort of makes me think, is that where they drew it from or is it just a phrase that they pulled up and used that it's a good title for some literature. It is a good title, yeah. A good title. It would have been a far better title for the album than "BG Sing and Play 14 Barry Gibbs Songs." Oh, that is naff, isn't it? Yeah. And what do you think to the cover? I don't dislike the cover. I know a lot of people don't like it, but I think it's yeah, it's very much of the time, but it shows. The three brothers. Because it's cut, isn't it? Because I've
0: seen photographs of actually.
1: Well, I think it just goes to show again how far behind Australia and the US was in terms of album covers. The Mm -hmm. UK was so far ahead. I mean, you only have to look at Pet Sounds from '66. That's that's enough cover as well, isn't it? Yeah. I
0: mean, they're thinking, oh, it's Pet Sounds. Let's have the Let's have the Beach Boys at a zoo. It's a very
1: unflattering photograph.
0: But we've still got one more song to go. We didn't say the best to last, unfortunately, on this one. And this is, was, again, a 65 song, but it wasn't released until January 66. And it, the song's called You Do Your Loving With Me. And it's by another chart topper called Lynn Fletcher. <laughs> Well, I don't quite know what to say from this. I think if you just listen back to what we said on Watching the Hours Goodbye,
1: you'll probably find it's they're like brother and sister. Yeah, or sister and sister. yeah, yeah Exactly the same for me. I don't really have much to say on it. it. This is Lynn Fletcher, but to my ears, it could have been Nolan Batley or any of those other artists that we've spoken about. It's a shame that we're, we're closing 65 with, with a song that really sort of draws back quality to the beginning of the year or even to 64.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very of, of its time, isn't it? And does and nothing to um, see the growth in the Bee Gees. Hence why I
1: sometimes think these songs were written probably six months prior. And definitely for this to have come out in 66, as we'll yeah. get on to in the next episode. 66 was such a, a well, to quote the Bee Gees, a, a wind of change for music. To, to have started the year with this for them, it, it, yeah, it's, it's not their finest hour. On Gibbs songs.
0: Joseph goes to say that the producer of this record, David Mackay, would then go on to work with Barry and the Beeches when he did the Bunbury records. Which we'll get to in
1: about three or four years. So with that, I think we end 65. Have we got anything to add on there, Chris? Well, at the end of 1965, I'm feeling like we've really started to see where the Bee Gees are going. We've had much more of a flavour of the type of songs that we're going to be seeing a lot more of. And with the introduction of Robin on lead vocals and we're getting more of Morris on instrumentation and the harmony work and the gentler songs and I think that more sort of cultural awareness the songs that are more about society and social status and politics. I think this is probably, even if we don't know it, the most important year for the Bee Gees.
0: Here, as you say, they were finding their feet. They were were really improving. And I think it got to a point that by 66, I think they were ready to move on or back to the UK. They did actually request to come to the UK in 66, but... um, the parents didn't want to move because they said, we've come over here. But in the end, by 67, they succumbed. That's why they they left in, was it February? Yes. sixty seven? So I think by the end of 66, plans were already made for them to come over. They, I think they felt probably that they'd reached as far as they could go in Australia.
1: We've said before that Australia during this time was such a time capsule and so stuck behind the times. You know, there's only so far they can get. They needed to move away from that. And the UK... It was either going to be the UK or the US was where they needed to be. Mm. And they ultimately made the right choice coming back to the UK, going back to their roots and then starting the career that would make them who they are. Because I don't know what their work
0: schedule was like in 66, but it gave me the impression that, that all the touring or the TV programmes, whether that was toned down a bit. Because obviously to write this amount of stuff, looking at it, they still give a lot of songs away, but not as much... Their material, you know, percentage wise, they were tending to hold on to more stuff,
1: yeah. And that'll even go to show on the album Spicks and Specks in comparison to Beachy Sing and Play, which was 80% songs that had already been released. Spicks and Specks was compositions, new compositions for that album, and it is an actual proper album. Mm.
0: What I will say about 65, Chris, is that usually throughout these episodes, we go through all the songs that. Released and stuff but literally for, for 65 i can only find two songs one's called my lonely place and the other one's called my love won't
1: take the time do you know anything about them were they given no, away to anyone no.
0: they're just copyrighted whereas before in 64 we had born the board which we know was definitely recorded but just not released there's only two songs and i i can't see or i've, I've gone through the internet and i can't see anything
1: I found a couple of quotations from Barry and Robin talking about their difficulty getting exposure in Australia and their difficulty in getting recording time in the studio. Barry says, We didn't get much time in the studio. In fact, being an English group in Australia wasn't the thing to be, which is the weirdest thing. Even when the Beatles came up, still being an English group in Australia didn't do us any good at all. Robin then talks about their difficulty in Getting Studio Time. We'd ring up and say, we'd like to make our new record next week. How much time can we have? And if you didn't have a hit record or anything, then you'd get about an hour. Believe it or not, we'd cut a record in an hour. It's atrocious, but we did. And this was the way things were in Australia. And if we didn't do so well there, then this was one of the reasons. Mm. Which I think goes back to what I was saying about... The reason why the songs that the Bee Gees recorded themselves sounded pretty poor was because they didn't quite have the status as an artist in the same way that they had a status as composers. So they weren't given much studio time. Whereas if an artist, I don't know, whoever it was, the Delawares, Del Giuliano, who had a little bit more of a status as a singer, they were given more studio Mm. time. And that's why the production sounded a bit better. But it goes
0: again to this, this that we talk about, about negativity and everything they talk
1: about. Australia is always slightly negative, isn't it? Because they didn't get the number one record because they weren't able to prove themselves for what they wanted. Mm. There's never, oh, we wrote six, seven fantastic songs in
0: 66. Barry did a really good vocal or whatever. You don't hear nothing like
1: that at all, do you? But I think that the Bee Gees story is constantly peaks and troughs. You then get to 67 where everything's roses and you've got all these really great singles, New York Mining Disaster being recorded, etc. Then you get the split in 69, 1970. Then you get sort of the slump in the early 70s. Then you get the rise for disco. Then you get the backlash to disco. Then Mm. you get the songs Islands in the Stream and the success that they had in the early 80s. Then you get then the death of Andy. So it's constantly ups and downs, Mm. ups and downs. As we'll prove today and and, as we've proven in part one and, and in this part of our journey through Australia... There's really good material. You could nearly have an album nearly as good as as
0: Bee Gees first, couldn't you?
1: The only thing that lets it down is the production itself. Mm. But in terms of compositions... In terms of song song material you could do.
0: So with that then we'll say goodbye.
1: Yeah, and we will leave you with a preview for Things to Come in 1966. (coughs) Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees Podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at gmail.com.